Tobias Carlyle is the founder and principal of Acquire's Funds. For regulatory reasons, he will not discuss any of the Acquire's Funds on this podcast. All opinions expressed by podcast participants are solely their own and do not reflect the opinions of Acquire's Funds or affiliates. For more information, visit acquiresfunds.com. The button. This meeting is being live streamed. It is 10.30 a.m. on the West Coast, 1.30 p.m. on the East Coast. No idea what that is, Australian Eastern Standard Time. I think this is the time of the year we're close together. It could be 5.30 a.m. Hello. <laughs> What's happening, fellas? How's it going? Bill's fresh off. Uh, he's got nap, nap head. Nap jitsu. Yes, this is true. I want to go take another. I may. Mm. If I'm if I'm not if I'm not saying anything intelligent, it's because I'm sleeping in my head. <laughs> that's what it is. Yeah, that's the problem. That's right. <laughs> uh, so, what topics do we got today? Well, some sad news: Lou Simpson, the great Lou Simpson, passed yeah. away yesterday. Uh, Vale, Lou Simpson. I was like almost certain you were going to say Bob Saget died. (laughs) Yeah, Bob Saget also died. Is that right? I didn't hear that. Yeah, man. Danny Tanner. No longer. He wasn't that old. 65. Yeah. Congestive heart failure. Oh, cocaine's a hell of a drug. (laughs) I don't actually know that that's true. Yeah, that's probably like slandering the dead or something. Yes. But he's it got was, a good joke. You know, it was always wild to me was his his persona from Full House versus his stand up, which was like yeah. super raunchy. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, that, that was he had quite a stand up persona. Yeah. Oh, man, that's a bummer. You guys just like ruined my day. I know, man. It was sad. Who's the third one? They always come in threes, don't they? Yeah. Oh. Remains to be seen. Okay. I got a few interesting topics today. Um, Ooh, nice. You can carry me. <laughs> so I've been, I've been looking at, uh, I started reading Dave Collins' year in review. It's such a massive tome. It's like a week-long effort to get through it. Uh, it must take him a year to write. He must have to start yeah, next year's t- right now. <laughs> this year's right now. Um, but uh, there's some interesting stuff. He's talking a little bit about commodities. I don't really... I. I I'm not talking about him on commodities. I've got Fundsmith on commodities, which mm. is kind of interesting. Um, little substack I found watch list has this uh, take on Buffett's analysis of Coke, which I thought was kind of interesting. And uh, Drew Dixon at Albert, Albert, uh, Bridge. Albert Bridge. Albert Bridge, thank you. Uh, Capital, he's done a little bit on value versus growth in a drawdown. So those are my three topics. JT, what you got? Three, man, you are over delivering. Yeah, I'm going to let you run run with that, Toby. Yeah, toss those out. We can chew on them. I, yeah. I actually have two. So I, f- I guess we were all anticipating having to bring a little extra this week. <laughs> uh, my first one is on uh, cytokine storms, which is a immune reaction that uh, maybe we'll get into. And then, uh, you know, being the kind of towards the beginning of the year and a bit of a, you know, you do a little review and soul searching. I, I did a, uh, 
kind of a postmortem on why the hell didn't I own Google over the last five years? And so that'll, that'll be, there's some numbers and like little back of the envelope math to unpack that might be might be useful or interesting. Uh, I'm going to see what you guys have to say. Okay. Jake, do you wanna- I have, I've been thinking about Bridgewater stuff. So if we, Oof. if we don't get through, uh, I may talk Bridgewater a little, I oh, also do think somebody, today. I do think somebody was right where, uh, well, I'm, I'm almost certain where Ray said civil unrest and not civil war, but mm. I don't know. I, I saw a, I saw a, just randomly saw a thread on it today. And I thought that he did, in fact, say civil war. Well, according to I Twitter. thought he, I thought he did, but I, you know, I don't know. I didn't go back and re-listen to those. I got sent uh, a different video, which I like quite a bit. From their CIO, did a podcast with Grant Williams in Endgame, and I thought that was pretty good, pretty good talk. An but, account I like, Random Walk, was just comparing Buffett's sort of sunny optimism with uh, Dahlia's sort of more dour assessment of the prospects of the U.S versus china dali is a big china fan uh buffett's obviously a big uh backer of the big u.s optimist optimist in general and optimist on the u.s and uh i i i prefer buffett's view of the world but um they definitely did say he definitely dali definitely i mean in this thread Dahlia was like chance of civil war reasonably high higher than you might expect yeah, I guess I, I just don't know. I, I need more definitions on war and whatnot. But yeah, yeah. what I don't counts? Know. What counts as unrest? You have to declare it. Are we not already? Well, there is or? it like in a, in a? Is it like a political war? I don't know. Obvi- obviously, storming the Capitol does that count? Uh, people marching does that count? I don't yeah, know. I just you know, there's sometimes when people say things that are outlandish, and I don't even know that he said that. I just think the it should be the interviewer, and I I've, I've been an interviewer, and I missed follow-ups but like something like that warrants a follow-up yeah what like what exactly you are you saying here <laughs> so yeah no let's just move on to your all-weather portfolio <laughs> yeah that's right um i don't i don't do know we- that i would characterize him though as like a china lover although that one answer people are gonna skewer me and be like didn't you see what he said about that but i just kind of wonder I, I I do kind of buy into the idea that like, you know, the U.S. got to set the rules for a while and now the rules are changing. And I'm not sure that we're actually hungry enough to, to uh, navigate that change. The American eater is always hungry, Bill. That's true. <laughs> but the American worker is very hard to find. Ouch. Do you think that that's a stimulus um, as a result of the stimulus, that seems to be like the prevailing narrative, right? No, I think I think for a long time, I don't know. I think America's uh, as a country spends more than we earn and not as hungry as people that need it more. Mm. I, I don't think that's like controversial. Go try to find a bar back. <laughs> Maybe they need to pay more. Mm. But you can't. So typically not done by Americans. I mean, a lot of, a lot of jobs. I, I don't know. We'll see. Yeah. That's... I've been a barback. That's all right. I have too. I had a great time. Yeah. So did I. It was fun. 
A lot of non-monetary benefits. <laughs> JT, do you want to take it away? We'll let you kick it off today since I'm always relegating you to third place. This will yeah, let everybody, this will let everybody close down early. You can turn <laughs> it off as soon as JT's done. Well, maybe I'll save my part two for the very end. But we'll save right. the But do you want to save the side? Well, you know, no. Yeah, to let's, go, do go let's do let's do kind storms first. Um, you know, last time we talked about E.O. Wilson and this idea of group selection over over uh, just purely gene selection, and <clears throat> it got me thinking about humanity as this sort of like super organism, which is something that Wilson espoused after looking at ants and seeing how they operate as this sort of super organism that seems coordinated at, at levels that don't make sense if you just look at their very, very simple biology. Um, so let's, um, you know, the Spanish flu 1918 to 1920, right? And it killed 40 million people. And a lot of those people were 20 to 40 year old healthy people, uh, which is like shocking and scary, right? If you were actually living through it and you know, a reasonably healthy person. As far as the, probably the life years lost and the quality of life years that were lost in that, it's like way different than, than COVID, right? Where it's COVID sort of had a lot of more uh, towards the older people that fell into it. But anyway, the, at that time, the global population was about 1.8 billion people. So 40 million on 1.8 billion, that's like 2.2% of the population. So if that if we had a similar equivalent of COVID today on a seven billion population, that'd be 150 million people who would have died from COVID versus the roughly five million I think was the last statistic that I saw. So like five versus 150, like dramatically different, right? So it's it, we got probably very lucky actually with the severity of COVID relative to what what happened in the Spanish flu, and what was going on there was this in why young people were hurt and killed by the Spanish flu was that it created this thing called a cytokine storm. And cytokines are this immune response that are normally okay for your body to do. Like they, they circulate through your blood and, but they cause inflammation and they help activate the immune system. But if they get to be too many of them in your blood, it will then impact your organs and you actually organs will shut down and people will die from that. Um, so it's a, like going back then to Wilson and this idea of a super organism of the human of humanity, it has me wondering if, is it possible that COVID triggered a cytokine storm at a societal level? Like the super organism has this immune response to a, to a pathogen. It's not biological as much as it actually is like a societal response. And so we're seeing all kinds of inflammation. We're seeing organ failure, like sort of like the trust in our institutions uh, seems to be eroding. And a lot of this, uh, my thoughts are like uh, dovetail in with this podcast I listened to with P Dr. Peter Atia that he did recently, kind of on a COVID update with these other two doctors that was really good. Uh, I, I enjoyed it a lot. And he was lamenting that he felt like, you know, this, you know, COVID has been bad, but from a societal standpoint, like sort of the loss of trust is, might be the biggest casualty of the whole thing. And when we actually do need to coordinate again in the future for something that's worse, like if we actually had the Spanish flu, like people might be like, you know what, you kind of dicked me around this last time. I'm not going to listen to you this time. Right. Um, and so it, it has me thinking like, all right, well, what, what can we do? What's the, the, 
societal equivalent of trying to clear out the cytokine. So in treatment for a, a biological cytokine storm, they will give steroids to help reduce inflammation. And they do actually like dialysis to clear out the, the cytokines out of the bloodstream. So what's the dialysis that we could all be doing from a societal level uh, to you remove some of this inflammation and get back to, you know, kind of get back to a normal uh, amount of trust and interaction and sort of belief in our systems. And, uh, you know, like for me, it sort of comes back to kind of controlling your own things where, you know, go for a walk in nature, uh, you know, like lower your stress levels, uh, find, a, I think it you know, try to be kind to each other and, and maybe practice the golden rule of treating people how you'd want to be treated. Um, I, humility probably on the part of our leadership would probably go a long way right now, I think. Uh, and that, that was actually one of the most troubling things about that Atia podcast was some of the things they told about the NIH and the CDC were just like, like, I mean, level 10 oof, uh, you know, uh, just like really like, oh my God, that is, that's pretty bad. Um, so I, I, I probably shouldn't get into like the specifics because I don't understand them as well as, as probably a lot of other people do, but just the, the lack of transparency of what's supposed to be science-based and, you know, open book when you're trying to be scientific, like that's a big part of the scientific method is share the data, let other people look at it. Um, they kind of have kept a lot of that stuff to themselves and ignored a lot of the other outside scientists who were, they would normally advise, like they shut them out and have just like stayed on their own sort of party line or company line. Uh, anyway, it's kind of interesting to, to imagine the human species as a bigger super organism and maybe we're experiencing an immune response to a potential threat. Yeah, I was... When the when it all first started happening, I to, to be fair, I just uh, spent a weekend with Chris Cole, and you know Cole's like a tail hedging uh, guy, so I'm always, um, you know, I think he's like one of the sentinels who's way out on the on the edge watching for yeah. things happening. And then we came straight straight back. I came back from that, and I was sitting in the airport away from my family, reading Zero Hedge on on COVID. Sell and I, everything. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, not so much. Not, I mean, it wasn't even at that stage yet. He was just saying, "Here are all of these um, satellite shots of China, where they'd like they've oh, got these shut huge. Down. Well, they were burning things. They were burning things, and he, they were saying like, like they're burning all of these bodies, and they were, had all the pictures of people like falling over in the street. You remember that? Yeah, they were like welding people into their houses and stuff like that, which seemed pretty frightening. And I and I have read books on the Spanish flu. Um, which sort of followed World War One was like came out of World War One, and so I, I was pretty nervous about that. You can go back and listen to those podcasts that we were recording around that time. I was, I thought this is as you were describing, like the Spanish flu was, you know, massively impactful to uh, the working age people, and you know, society was, uh, you know, potentially could have collapsed at that point. And that's the societies collapse all the time. You go back through ancient history, like there's some scary stuff that happens when Carthage against the Romans, like the Romans defeated Carthage and then went, obliterated Carthage. Like there's no Phoenicians left anymore. There are lots of these things have just disappeared. So I was somewhat nervous that that was going to happen. Clearly none of that's happened. That was, uh, <laughs> as it's gone on, it seems, you know, not quite as, uh, not quite as aggressive as, uh, as, as it may have first appeared. But that, I mean, that was a bit of luck for humanity yeah. as well, right? Like it could have been 
that we didn't bad. know. Like you, you should prepare for it as if it's going to be. Not that I not that I think that there's much you can do to sort of avoid it, but you know, prepare for it as if it is going to be that way. Get some food and that sort of stuff. Yeah. I have nothing to add. Yeah, sorry. Someone someone commented the other day that we've we've criticized Spanish moss, Spanish flu. <laughs> Los Siento, amigos. I don't mean to be uh, I'm not criticizing Spain. Someone's left to come into Spanish flu. It was great branding. It came out of the US. That's also yeah. a lie. Nothing bad comes out of the US except for <laughs> Alabama football. Oh, yeah. I think, wasn't it like came out of like Missouri or something and then went taken it over? It was from to the World Spaniards. Everybody knows it. What? I mean, it's, it, a, it's a conspiracy that you're talking about, man. What, anyway. What was the Spanish? What was the Spanish moss? What was the. What was, it's a, it's very invasive in, in Florida. It's very oh, okay. 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 You don't want yeah. that stuff on your trees. We're, we're beating Pretty, up the Spaniards. But it's invasive. I got love Spaniards. Spain. I went yeah, to, the, uh, to the Basque region, had some pinchos. That's not how they say it, but it's fucking good food. Really good food. They have these bars and you like walk around and you can get a bite of foie gras. It's like the best foie gras ever. That duck was tortured for me. Yeah, poor old foie gras. That's what I, I did I mean, myself. I thought it was goose, wasn't it? A, I thought it was goose liver, isn't that? Foie gras? Probably, yeah. Whatever it was, I'm glad that it had a terrible life because I enjoyed it. Yeah, I, I do that to myself over between in the silly yeah. season between Christmas and New Year's. I, I turn my liver into foie gras, like a stuffed goose. <laughs> I mean, I I do I I guess I kind of um, I I don't know on the COVID stuff. I'm just glad I'm in Florida, man. Mm. What do you mean by that? I mean that uh, I, I, if you didn't tell me COVID was going on right now, I would have no idea. Really? No, yeah. there's nobody's wearing masks or anything. Very few people. Interesting. We're all outside all day. That's fair. That's I'm worried about my kids' school, you know, but like they, they survived Delta and they'll survive this and. I don't know, man. It's time to get back to it, in my opinion. But I'm also not at risk of death at the moment, and I was scared during Delta, so we'll see. This, this kind of think uh, this live and let panic. live is a pretty good philosophy at this point, given all the data. There's definitely a panic going on here in California. There's a lot more. I've I've noticed a lot more of the uh, N95 mask where people were sort of rolling around with the. You know, just California is nuts, man. Y'all are out of your fucking minds. Well, not all of us, but most of us are. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Collectively. Um, JT, do you want to do? Do you want to do Google, or do you want me to? Let, let me yeah. let me just this, this little Coke. I, there's there's really nothing to this little Coke analysis. I just thought it was interesting. Uh, it'll take me two seconds, and then do, do Google. But um, watch list uh, investing is this Substack. Uh, they they just reminded me of the uh, the great analysis that Buffett did on Coke was basically this: as long as the unit sales of Coke are going up and the share count of Coke is going down, Buffett's analysis was this will probably work out. You know, given that it was like I, it, it looked like he was paying more than he had ever paid in the past, but they hadn't done any of the international expansion that you know, we now know it has been so successful. I just thought it's one of those really elegant, you know, typical Buffett, boil it down to like two kind of moving parts, make sure they're going in the right direction and just, you know, just let it happen. 
which Swedish match that worked out okay. Charter. <laughs> Swedish match. Yeah. Sell more nicotine pouches, retire shares. Yeah, that works. It's you know, working. Uh, it, it reminds me of the, the Zeckhauser. There's a book that, he, that somebody wrote of all of his analytical maxims. And, uh, you know, Zeckhauser was this professor at Harvard who um, was an economist, but he was also like a world-class bridge player. And he, Buffett and Munger were friends with him. And um, he, one of the things that is in that book is that like good analysis typically requires a denominator. So you're always trying to like figure out like per unit that those per something and that you could see it in Buffett's like when he talks about things and he says like, you know, every whatever eight ounce serving of Coke is, you know, one eighth of it is goes to Berkshire basically. Like he, he does these little interesting kind of per unit calculations all the time. And it's really smart, but I think that's where he got it from with Zeckhauser. Yeah. It's a good approach. Do you want to do Google? I just wanted to sort of mention it because I thought it was just an elegant little solve and I just wanted to sort of start using it myself. So I thought it was a good approach. The other thing that's nice about Charter, even though you know it's a cable company and people hate them, is then they use uh, at least my perception of their strategy. Although Comcast pricing is not that much different. But um, you know they use their scale advantage locally to drive prices down, which makes overbuilding less enticing. It's a nice sleep at night stock. So rates go up and they can't refi their debt. I'm in a poor house. <laughs> it's a zero. It's a question here. Is and Zick, it's Is Zekhazer the uh, unknown and unknowable guy? Uh, wasn't that... Oh, uh, sorry, folks. Dick Cheney. Uh, Donald Rumsfeld, right? Or Rumsfeld, that's what I meant. Sorry, but but did somebody uh, didn't you 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 gave a you, one of your one of your veggies was on the the different the different quadrants, right? Oh yeah, no, no, I don't think that was him. Uh, I know which one you're saying, but I don't remember. Let's do, let's do Google. Yeah, why did we all just buy Google and go to the beach? We could. I think it's still it's reasonable. I've heard people are buying it now. I haven't closely looked, but if you. You know, you don't about, like we'll get to that too. But all right, so this this comes from um, when I look at Google and I say like, okay, why haven't I owned it for the last five or six years? And I've I've been to the campus multiple times. I know lots of smart people that work there. I'm very impressed by the culture more generally. Read a couple books about it. Recognize that search and the ad sales from search are is easily one of the best businesses to ever spawn on planet earth like it's it's incredible knowing all of that how did i miss it and like really trying to rub my nose in this mistake because it's like this is one of those big opportunity cost loss that's really hurt so it's it's good to unpack it so in in this process i tried to take uh put myself and transplant myself back to 2015 and then just look at all of the numbers the financials from like say 2010 to 2015 and just sort of like get a sense of what would I have paid in 2015 and if I looked forward another five or six years of what I thought the business might do what would have been a reasonable expected return and then what actually happened so I'm going to walk through the numbers and I'll I might move kind of quick but um, I should probably like put this together into a tweet storm or something so that 
the numbers are a little bit more easy to follow along. But so in, in Google's income statement from 2010 to 2015, revenue grew from 24 billion to 66 billion. So we have a 22% annual growth on revenue top line for those five years. Okay. Operating margin in 2010 was 35%. That went down to 25% in 2015. I don't know if this is like moonshots or whatever the hell was pinching the operating margin, but, um, but margin was trending down. Uh, and then you had the 2015 valuation, the EV to EBIT was 19 times. And the average EV to EBIT over the, that 2010 to 2015 period was 17 times. So it was roughly trading kind of where it, it typically traded in 2015 if I was to consider buying it. Um, so you had a market cap of about 360 billion and an EV, the cash balance was, uh, had started out at 24 billion in 2010 and then gone to 63 billion. So the cash balance actually was on a, a 20% CAGR as well. And so backing the cash out, you had an EV of 307 billion in 2015. Okay, so let's start from there. And then I'm gonna, I imagine like, okay, I'm gonna make projections to, tw to the year 2021. Like what would I have expected this business to do? So I assumed 15% CAGR, which, you know, it was 22%, I said previously, but, you know, a, a company that big, if you look at the base rate book that Mal Boson put out, you would say, boy, there has to be something really special going on here to ever imagine that you could keep compounding at that level. So I'm just going to like back it off. I'm not going to say it's like dying, but I'm going to back it off somewhat. Okay. So 15% CAGR. Uh, that would make then revenue growing from 66 billion in 2015 to 152 billion in 2021. All right, I'm going to assume operating margin falls to 20%, which remember it had gone 35, 25. I'm going to assume it kind of found a, a reasonable level of 20%. Uh, so that would then make earnings grow from 17 billion to 30 billion from 2015 to 2021. And then I'm going to stick a 20 EV to EBIT multiple on that. Uh, and like I said, it was 17 for that average of 2010 to 2015. So I'm kind of already like imagining a pretty good exit multiple at that 2021, I think. Um, and so you end up with an EV of about 600 billion, right? And so grow that cash balance again uh, by 15% CAGR to then back into a market cap of uh, 455 billion then is what I would have come up with as my projection of the market cap in 2021. So 360 in 2015, that was known, my projections 455 in six years, that's a 4% CAGR okay, like that's not like that amazing. And I thought I like, I gave them reasonable credit. I gave them a 15% top line growth. I gave them a 20% multiple or a 20% or 20 times multiple, 20% margin. Like these are all pretty healthy assumptions, I think. Like I'm not like going crazy. Well, what actually ended up happening? Okay, revenue grew to 182 billion, which was an 18% CAGR. So the, the revenue growth rate slowed down a little bit. I gave them 15, they came in at 18. All right, like not that far off. Operating margin came in at 23%. I gave them 20. Um, all right, we're not that far off there. So you can, then an EBIT of uh, 42. Here's where the thing, where it went sideways for me. Multiple went to 31 times EV to EBIT. I was giving them credit for 20. Okay, so I was off by quite a bit. So that comes in that in, at 1.3 trillion for the EV then at that point. 
back out 137 billion of cash and you end up with a market cap then of basically like 1.1 trillion in 2021. So share count basically stayed flat. Like they retired whatever they were, buy, uh, whatever they issued in, in stock options to all my friends that worked there. Um, so you ended up then the market cap going from 360 in 2015 to 1 1.1 trillion in those six years, which is a 22% kager that I missed. So I, my projections, what I thought were reasonable, came out with a 4% potential kager, and it ended up coming in at 22%. And basically, like I missed, I was a little too pessimistic on top line, and I was a little pessimistic on margin, but I was way too pessimistic on what everyone else was willing to pay for it at 20 versus 31. So is the, is the analysis that you didn't make a mistake because on the analysis that you, on the facts that you on the assumptions that you made at the time, it was the right decision. Um, I would say that uh, my all sort of false humility aside. Yeah, no, my no, my down the middle like uh, base of what I imagined the business would do was probably a little pessimistic, and even even looking at it today, so like it was a little bit more right taily of an outcome, which you maybe should have expected with such a great business and so many smart people working there and so many ways to win. Um, now what's, here's where it gets insane in, in the last nine months. So trailing 12 months from the last report, which was 930, uh, 21 revenue has grown to 239 billion, which is a 44% CAGR over the last nine months. Oh, uh, operating margin jumped to 30% from 23. Whoa. Yeah. Uh, so EBIT 72 billion, which is 105% CAGR over the over a year. Whoa. And then so the multiple actually came down a little bit from 31 to 25 EV to EBIT, but you still end up with a a 77% CAGR in the the EV over the last nine months. So like this thing just went absolutely. I mean, it's insane. Why did it take off? Is it a lockdown thing or is it, what is it? Yeah, I think it's, uh, yeah, I think it's lockdown. Everyone on the internet all day long now. I don't know. I mean, Bill, you probably have a better idea why. YouTube? Yeah, maybe. They reined in. I think they reined in some, some spending buybacks started to become a priority. Get some more e-commerce, more advertising, travel advertising starts to come back. I don't know exactly all the reasons for the, uh, for the inflection up, but I, I think like, I, I do think like, uh, so if you just hang like a 75% tax rate on a 20% EBIT or 20 times EBIT multiple, you're at like 26 times. I don't know. I, I think, um, I think, uh, I think the ROIC probably requires slightly higher multiples for this business. I mean, especially if they're I, doing I buybacks right? instead of like moonshots that don't ever materialize. Uh, what? Ah, that's okay. Yeah, when yeah, was... yeah. Well, and then they got GCP starts to show some flash, and I don't know. You start to get some religion on what actually matters from spend, and you get a CEO change. That guy gets focused on some things. I mean, there, there was. Uh, I, I bought it when the CEO turned. Like, I increased my position when the the CEO was named and actually I thought it was less of two people's pet project and closer to a business that was going to be run for public shareholders. Good man. Good comment so, here from Dylan Thompson saying Google 
going to rein in headcount and expenses like Bezos to Amazon back in 2018. I tend to agree with that. I, I did a deal with them when I was a general counsel of a telecommunications company in Australia. And that was, we were just astonished at the amount of money that they spent. Like they all flew first, first class. Oh yeah. To, yeah. To us. I, as a shareholder, I don't know that I really want that to be honest. Mm. But they have that leave it at pull at some point is the, is just, it doesn't have to be now, but if they, if they ever look like they're going to miss numbers, Hey, everybody, you got to fly business class now. Do you yeah. guys want I mean, YouTube is a fucking monster, man. My kids don't even watch TV anymore. Like, and, and, uh, I don't know, like thinking like really long and stuff like IP that's tied to the bundle. Like my, my kids just watch. I mean, I guess Viacom bought Ryan or the rights to Ryan or whatever. Oh, the kid who well, does the unboxing. Yeah. Well, I, he had like Ryan's playhouse or whatever, but like my kids watch stuff like the fun squad and just these families that pimp their families out. <laughs> my kids love that stuff. Yeah. It's bizarre. Kids like to watch other people play video games and then yell over the top of them while they're playing the video games. It's so annoying to listen to. <laughs> uh, I mean, the other thing is like, you know, I was, I was doing Google just, they, they have a lot of stuff that's like working uh, in a big way. Like I, I was doing Roku research and asked some of my international peeps, like, how do you guys watch TV? And the amount of people that are watching on Android stuff, I think, you know, as a US focused mm. person is easy to miss. And then like, once you think global, Google's a monster. Can, uh, do you guys want to try walking forward five years from here to yeah. see what might look like? Just before you do, there's a good comment from Wolf Flow. They took away the dislike button, so there's nothing not to like. That's a good one. <laughs> well, I see dislike on ours right here. Are you, but they don't, they don't count them. They just sort of, yeah, you, you can, that I don't you like. mash That's that button. It's just for you. Smash that dislike button. It's a bad <laughs> idea. Uh, uh, I'll do, I'll do it and I'll come back with, with an actual, not off the, off the top of my head answer. You, you've done some analysis, JT. Yeah, of course. I, uh, I, so let's just, we'll try to walk through the same exercise, but from today, looking forward, what would, what might it look like? So, uh, Let's assume, first of all, that like trailing 12 months from 931 is close enough to call that 2021, and we'll just like work forward from there. Uh, let's assume revenue grows at 15% CAGR for the next five years. It was 18 the previous five years, but they just had this monster 44%. Still lesson, I know. Fuck. <laughs> <laughs> Someday there's going to be some reversion to the mean where you can't just grow to the sky. Um, well, you just put up 44%. Last year, like you would think that maybe that was pulled forward a little about, bit. I'm not All criticizing. Right. How, how often are you going to be? How often are you going to be too pessimistic on your assessments? Like not very often. All the time, apparently. Uh, so revenue then at 15% CAGR grows from 239 today to 480 in 2026. Okay, let's give them an operating margin of 25%. Like I said, 30% this year, but let's just say that there is some drift downwards there. Like it's tough to run a a business and be that profitable all the time, but they continue to do it. So that gives you earnings growing from 72 billion today to 120 in 2026. Okay. Uh, let's give them a 25 X EV to EBIT. Uh, they've averaged 24 and a half over the last five years. I'm, we're paying up at the end of this terminal value. All right. So that gives you an EV of 3 trillion. Okay. Uh, Modest. yeah, 3 trillion is a big business. We're going to assume the cash balance of today grows at a 10% clip, uh, which matches the last five years. So 
that's going from 142 billion to 234 billion. So we'll back that out to give us a market cap of 2.7 trillion, let's call it. All right. So going from today, 1.8 to 2.7 in the next five years, that's an 8.8 CAGR over the next five years if, if they can deliver those results and that's what people are willing to pay for it. Well, I, and let's then also assume another 2% share count reduction uh, if, that's what per, if they're buying back shares, which looks to be what they're starting to do. Um, so even with very optimistic assumptions, I think, maybe I'm wrong again here as always, but 15% revenue growth rate, 25% operating margin, 25 times EV to EBIT, you only get about a 10% expected return from here, which I mean, 10% is okay, but like there's, there's, a, there's still some level of execution risk baked into getting to that 3 trillion. Um, let's, I, I put together a little bit more of a bearish scenario, let's call it, is it, because maybe I'm, I don't know, I'm, I'm wired that way, but let's just assume that they grow a 5% revenue growth rate nah. off, of a, off of a huge base. No way. Huge base. No already. way. <laughs> No just, fucking he's doing way. A, he's doing a pessimist. He's doing I don't care. It's not realistic, analysis. in my opinion. <sighs> All right. Well, let's just humor me for okay. two seconds. All right. That gets you to about three hundred billion in revenue in twenty twenty six. All right. And by the way, like, uh, is this real or is this nominal? <laughs> Does it matter? That's yeah. Because I mean, if we're gonna say nominal. inflation, five, like five percent is inflation. No, <laughs> yeah, that's right. Yeah. Like. All right. Fair enough. Call it real. But let me remind you, though, that 2019 revenue was 160 billion. So we're, we're 2xing revenue from 2019. Okay. Like this isn't insane. There was a big change from 2020 till now. I know. Like exactly. the world did change. Uh, that is true. All right. Let's, let's shrink operating margins to 20%. They were 22% in 2019. So this isn't like unprecedented. That actually changes earnings of 72 billion today to 61 billion in 2026, right? Because they, they've just been like so blow it out for the last year. Let's give them a 15 times EBIT, EV to EBIT, which was the average from 2010 to 2014. So again, not unprecedented. That gives you an EV of 915 billion. Okay, let's assume that the cash balance stays at 142. And then let's, we're doing pessimistic and we're going to say that they kind of piss away some of the money. They don't do buybacks. Uh, it's all moonshots and, and first class tickets. So that gives you then a market cap of 773 billion, which that from that's a negative 15% CAGR from today to 2026. If, if that's what happens. So I don't think these are crazy pessimistic assumptions to have they 5% are. revenue growth, 20% operating margin, 15 times EV to EBIT. And that you end is, up with a negative 15% CAGR from here. It's not going to happen. Well, I'm not saying it, this is a likely scenario, but I don't think it's a 0% chance. Do you? I, I think that plucking 5% out of the air is not. Yeah, I, I, I think it's very, very low probability scenario. Yes, I do. You could be right. I'm not saying that you're wrong there, but just if I mean, you're you trying got, to you got wrap like, your mind around the potential things that could happen, I understand, business. but like to the upside, you got Waymo there. Like that's not nothing. You got GCP there. That's not nothing. You got a continued structural move to digital advertising. You got uh, the world going more mobile. Like, I, man, 5% is tough for me to buy. Fair I'm not enough. saying it's impossible, but I just, I, I don't think it's probable. 
Well, Which you don't I think either, if you're, to be fair. You're saying it's a bear case, but... Yeah, I would say that uh, you really cannot believe it if you're going to be long from here. I do not. That's fair. Bill Nygren's been pretty uh, good on this on, on Google for a long time. Oakmark's had, had a holding in it. His analysis has been basically... It, the problem is um, the accounting rules, the, the treatment of other bets, expensing other bets when he's they, they capitalize other bets and they do a few other things. Um, and basically they say you're getting Google's search business for less than an S&P 500 multiple once you sort of back everything else out. I think with a lot of these tech companies, I haven't quite fully figured out how I like to do it, but I, I almost think of like shifting the income statement where like 2020's expenses should actually be comp to like 2021 or 2022 revenues. If that makes sense. Cause they're like, they're spending so far ahead of when the revenues come in that if you're looking at the margin, it's like artificially compressed relative to how, how, like what reality is. I mean, the thing that the thing that is crazy to me is like, even with that growth, uh, like I'm, I'm just looking at 2020, right? But you, you, $65 million of cash flow provided by operations, despite that kind of growth. Like that's fucking crazy. It's a your typical business, like working business. capital ends up like, you know, taking yeah. some money and like, you, you know, growth is not cheap. And these guys are just like showering themselves in cash while they grow. It's, it's insane. So, but I mean, the buybacks really ramped up that I think got the market excited. Is it net? Uh, are they net buybacks or are they just yeah. mopping up uh, all of the option issuance? No, it, it crossed over like, uh... yeah. 2017-ish, actually, they stopped. It kind of peaked in 2018, and it's been starting to tip over and trend downward as total share count. They need to lever up and bro down. That's the Apple playbook. Yeah, well, it got up to $3 trillion. Remember when a trillion dollars was a lot? When did, when, did, when did the first company hit a trillion dollars? That was only a few years ago. Yeah. I mean, just, just looking, and my, my data feed might suck, but just like looking at consensus, 80, 80 billion of free cash flow in 2022 on 1.7 billion EV. I mean, you're like a 4% free cash flow yield a year out, a year and a half out. That's like, it's not that rich. Question from it's Annabelle not. Miller. <laughs> what is do you think the- you faded to? Hold on, hold on. This, yeah. So this is, a, this is a credible, this is an interesting question. Annabelle Miller says, isn't the Web 3.0 premise that Web 2.0 ad-driven business models are defunct? What is Web 3.0? Well, my understanding of some of the goal of Web 3.0 is to distribute some of the economics back to the people and away from those companies. I don't give a shit what the premise of it is. Like we are not even close in my opinion to like proving that it's going to be a mainstream concept. And I kind of view a lot of, I mean, I say like, I'm crypto curious. I say I'm interested in these NFTs. 
I've also said like, I am curious for the same reason that I should have been curious about the internet in 1999. I mean, I think these could be like 20 or 30 years away. Uh, and the idea that like, I don't know. I, I just, I don't know how it's all going to evolve. I got to think Google has some sense of how it might evolve. I also think it's interesting that Web 3.0, I guess there's different nodes it'll all run on, so it may not need GCP. I did see a funny tweet that said, uh, Web 4.0 is just going outside. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, look, it's a risk. I, I think, I think um, like Preston uh, Pish sent me some stuff uh, through, uh, I forget what the wallet was, but I think I talked about that when he, when he sent me Bitcoin over a wallet. And I was like, whoa, this is crazy. I mean, when you think of international remittances, when you think of like, you know, the banking or, or the rails and whatnot, um, you know, I don't know how it all, I don't know how the backend tech works. Uh, with I have the- a hard enough time following the company as I am. With the possibility for Web 3.0, this like distributed, um, you know, approach, how do you feel about something like Facebook's metaverse? Is that, are they trying to like AOL walled garden, just going at the wrong direction? I don't, I I think it's like something, uh, my perception of what Zuckerberg sees is uh, the next iteration of social. And I, I think that like, I think the error that people make dismissing the metaverse is they see the numbers and it's a flashy, like it's, it's obviously a marketing ploy, like what it's called and whatever. And then people are like, well, it's not getting adopted today. Therefore this is stupid. But like, I mean, I agree. Oculus has a long way to go. Like I'm not sitting here saying, Oh, it's tomorrow. We're all going to like plug in, but to sit around and hang out and like, like I totally, if there was, uh, a world where my friends from Auburn and I all had some sort of AR or VR. Well, this would be VR glasses. And we could have watched like the uh, Alabama Georgia game together, like together. I would totally do that stuff. And I think that's kind of what like Zuckerberg sees. And then I think that it's very real when you apply it to business. Why can't you just put the game on at your house and like open up a Zoom? pointing well, at because it's two-dimensional and not three-dimensional i mean it, there is an element of feeling that's different when you watch through the oculus that's sensory i mean it's why people get motion sick nausea is that the feeling yeah well some people yeah i mean i do i it's a very cool idea and i and i think if you're zuck and you're looking at like how much cash this business is printing i mean I don't know to not, it does seem like a logical place that the world could go. So to just like not invest in it seems like uh, death to me. Like uh, that sounds crazy at a minimum. I got to think he's going to get some advertising insights from all the R and D's doing. And if that can take him into the next 20 years then this thing's a home run, even if it's maybe not NPV positive, it's like milk. Right, like maybe it's just the loss leader. Zuckerberg is cookie licking by naming FB Meta, trying to scare the other kids away. Yeah, it's pretty funny. I mean, my boy Francisco thinks Roblox is like the best metaverse play. Um, Your boyfriend, uh, Cisco? Yeah, that's right. Um, And I think, you know, he's, I think he's got a pretty compelling, compelling uh, argument. It's a 
it's a damn good business model. At least it appears to be. Toby, do you have more? I thought you had a couple extra items. We need. I get some bits and pieces. Throw your questions in, guys. I'll, I'll just these aren't these aren't particularly nothing's particularly big here. I was just kind of throwing them out. Um, so Terry Funsmith talking about commodities because I, I I read I, as I was saying before I read David Terry Collins. Smith. Yeah, change Sorry, his what, name to Funsmith. Did, did I say Terry Funsmith? <laughs> Terry <Yeah>. McFunsmith. <laughs> yes, Terrence like McFunsmith. Like Tim Apple. <laughs> Tim Apple. Just so everyone knows who I'm talking about. Warren Berkshire. <laughs> um, after reading Dave Collins, you know, it's, uh, Dave, Dave's um, uh, written a little bit about commodities and how, you know, commodities... Um, have basically not participated in the last sort of 13 years or 14 years, whatever it is. And that uh, you can find all those charts that show there's extreme sort of disparities between, you know, the equities versus commodities, picky commodity. We're at a wider, a wider um, spread than we were in 1999. Whether that's meaningful or not, I, I have no idea because it's, you know, it's I, the natural state of, commodities has tended to be i think it's deflation because we get better at pulling stuff out of the ground having said that we're doing more increasingly heroic things to pull energy out of the ground so maybe that does get harder and harder to do and there's a lot of facts and figures in his little article so i was just sort of interested in um this little thing from terry funsmith where (laughs) terry smith at funsmith it is a great name for a fund by the way or for a firm he said that the the first order of uh commodity prices kicking off isn't felt by consumers it's it's felt by because they it, they tend to be their first order goods consumed by producers or consumed by manufacturers consumed by businesses and so they impact business profitability before they impact consumers but the way that they might show up is like some increase in the discount rate so you know a high quality company's definitionally has something has very high margins and can control its margins and if its input costs go up depending on what portion of those margins the input costs consume, that's how much you impact the profitability. Maybe that, that increase in the cost cuts the margins, warrants an increase in the discount rate. So you see some of these companies that are intensive consumers of commodities being impacted. Um, I don't know if you then necessarily want to go and get long a whole of these commodity plays they're just they haven't been particularly good like you know gold does look interesting energy's been running i don't know what do you guys think i think that you said that high quality companies have high margins and there's one amendment they can have high turnover and low margins right that's a that's another way that you could run that um like costco for instance but i agree yeah. that they have pricing power um i do not i i I talked to uh, Will Thompson. Will runs uh, Massive Capital, and I interviewed him. It's coming out, I think, in two weeks. Um, and he said something that I think is really right. And and I, I think it's been somewhat similar uh, when I pitch banks in the past, like big banks. Uh, although Wells, I actually do think, was an asset-specific thesis. Um, when you get generalists that are pitching big commodity companies, it's basically a macro bet. Yeah, And that rarely goes well. And I think it's interesting that a lot of people right now that I see just in the chatter and whatever are like commodities are cheap and everything else is expensive, but then they 
it seems to me that they're projecting uh, at least some of these people are projecting that we're in an everything bubble. And yeah. my question is if the everything bubble pops, it would tend to suggest to me that commodities would go down, like commodity quantity demanded would go down. And if the quantity demanded of a commodity goes down, the operating leverage bucks you hard. And that is like a technical term. And uh, I think that it's maybe CFA level three. Yeah. Like then they're not so cheap, right? Um, on the other hand, see what's going on with lumber, and it's like, man, this you know, if this sticks, oh my! So I don't know. I see Mike Mitchell's been in the comments. There you go, Mike. We finally got into lumber. <laughs> yeah. So I, I I don't know. I mean, I think it's really I I understand why people like commodities right now. I just also, um, I don't know, man. Cheap cyclicals, generalist pitching commodities, generalist pitching big banks. It's, uh, I'm not sure how the base rates work on that. JT? Uh, hard to unpack. There's a lot of moving pieces to all of this, right? Like, I think it, it it's pretty safe to say, I think that, uh, and like Einhorn has observed this, that the capital that's gone into those industries has really been shut off and pinched off and yeah we've probably there's been a lot more capital a lot more interest going into software projects than there has uh drilling for oil or you know or iron ore or something um so i don't know like i think these things all move in cycles and eventually there's some reversion to the mean on all of them i don't know how long that takes I don't really care if what generalists are saying or doing, or I don't use, I wouldn't try to use that as a measuring stick for much. Like that's like, uh, that's basically like Mr. Market adjacent, like, but I don't know. I think there's I, long-term, very long-term. I'm, you know, I think that commodities, long commodities is short human ingenuity. And I yeah. wouldn't really want to be short human ingenuity for a long time. I guess I guess what I would say about the generalist comment that I made is like, if you listen to Mike talk about lumber, I think that's how good you have to be in commodities. Like, it's not a game to just, in my opinion, look at and be like, yeah. Now that said, which investment I mean, space if, is the right uh, where you should just have a kind of half-assed understanding and <laughs> just be well, pun- yeah. There's, punting. I mean, there's none. I guess. I guess the. I guess my problem, my personal problem with the commodity thesis is the amount of time that I'm going to sink into learning about it. I don't view it as particularly transferable in the future. And as someone that is like just trying to figure out how to leverage time better, because I have like none of it right now, it's just not really where I'm going to spend my time. And if I have an aversion, that's probably the actual answer as to why. I do think that uh, like if these EVs that uh, like we'll cite some stats on how much it's going to take, like li- uh, how many years of lithium production we need in order to actually go to EV. It's insanity. Like we just fundamentally don't have it. The other thing that I think is somewhat funny is everybody that's talking about climate change and hailing EVs as the solution, like dig a bunch of holes in the ground, fill them with like acidic runoff, 
take all these natural resources out of the ground and put them in batteries, like we're going to have a different climate problem. It may, it may be like a resource allocation issue or whatever, but I, I think there's maybe some unforeseen second order effects from all this rah-rah that uh, people may wake up and say, oh, well, the devil we knew was better than the one we ran to, but I will tell on that. And then what? Yeah. What we need is an asteroid that we can harness that has all of these rare earth minerals in it and land that thing. Maybe it'll land all by itself. Yeah. Maybe something <laughs> will fling out of the Kuiper belt and get us. Maybe it'll come in at too high a speed. Yeah, somebody mentioned before that uh, Bill Miller, who's sort of in the process of stepping down, uh, and like last year or the year before, I think he said he'd become a billionaire. And this year or recently, he said that 50% of his um, uh, net worth is Bitcoin. Yeah, dude, he's been pitching Bitcoin since like 2015. He's got that Preston Pish money. And the other <laughs> 70% is uh, Amazon. Yeah. Is that how math works? Yeah. Well, I think that's right. If you're levered up. Um, I saw a question before about uh, small cap value versus value generally. It's tough because I, I, you know, spend a lot of time in mid and large and small. The smalls are, I don't know if this is always the case, but the smalls are definitely, uh, not as high quality as mid and large are. And the smalls traded a big discount to mid and large. So the question is, is the discount to mid, is the discount to the smalls uh, or is the multiple low enough to justify the discount that, you know, the, the, the lower quality that you're getting from, from small? I don't know. It's hard to, I, I honestly don't know. I, I, I sort of, my, my feeling, and I know that this is com- this is completely counterintuitive. I sort of feel like mid and large is a slightly mid and large value is a slightly better place to be than small value, even though it is a little bit more expensive. That might be complete heresy. It might be one hundred percent driven by by multiples. But well, so the small small value is the only style box right now that's below its twenty year average PE. The other, all the other ones are above their twenty year average. Yeah, that, that I've seen that. That I, I think I talked about that uh, a few months ago. Where that that you know the bottom. If you can visualize that style box with the nine things, and on one axis is 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 the size, and on the other axis is like value to growth. The bottom left hand corner, which is small value, is the only one. It's at like what did you say? Ninety five percent of its long run mean. Yeah, it's not like it's insanely cheap relative to its long run, but it's it's the and, only one below. Yeah, I, I think you run up. If you go up that left-hand column, which is all the value stuff, they I think it, large value is at like 105%. And I think mid value is at like 101%. And then going out to like the top right-hand corner is is like 165% or something of its long run, long run mean. Oh, sorry, whatever that large growth is at 165% of its long run mean. I don't know. It's 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 hard to I I I personally I have a lot of difficulty working out which one's going to outperform because they are at a discount, but they are better also well yeah the, the smalls are, are are worse and i i don't know if this is like a product of i think i said sarbox last time sarbanes oxley 
just makes it harder to, you know, it's, it's like a million dollars more expensive or it was last time I look a million dollars more expensive to get listed as a result of Sarbanes-Oxley than it had been before then. And so what companies tended to do was to stay private for longer, you know, like Facebook, where previously that might've come out public as a, as a small, you know, they just wait until they're mammoth before they, before they list. So they go have a chance of hitting the index pretty quickly, the big index. I don't know is the answer, but I have a slight feeling that it's going to be, maybe it's going to be mid, mid to where you want to be. Yeah. Trade-offs. I have nothing to add. Drew Dixon, this Albert Bridge, I tweeted this out last week. Drew Dixon had this little take on what happens in the next big drawdown because, uh, you know, if you, growth is, growth seems to be expensive, but growth, growth's been so beaten up over the last, I guess since February 12 last year was the date. So we're coming up on a year of growth being beaten up. Um, values had a little bit of a run, but still the spreads is, I don't know how, I honestly don't know how these aggregated numbers are working out, but the aggregated numbers are still saying the spread is as wide as it has ever been. And value sort of been, value ran to like May last year, and it's been losing ground to the index ever since losing ground. None of the aggregated figures match what the what my like intuitive narrative would say is going on. So I, I I honestly don't know. Just trying to buy cheap stuff that's flowing cash and buying back stock and not worrying about it too much at this point. Just kind of hoping that it all works out. Yeah, bottom up. Bottom folks, up. Bottom up, folks. Yeah. So I just, after I, about I, my I long think... rambling interest, bottom up. Well, I, I, uh, I don't know. Jerry Cap came out on Avlara or whatever. And I like, I think that ideas like that, not necessarily that idea, but uh, I, I could get down with buying smaller companies that have like a very, very long growth runway and high structural margins like that, that I could get down with. Obviously the nuances all matter, but. Is um, it time to start picking through the growth wreckage yet? I kind of think so. My gut says growth rallies. Yeah, there's some stuff that's expensive. Like I'm amazed that when I look at Kathy's portfolio, as much as it's down, I look in there and I'm like, still, there's some still some crazy kind of valuations in here. I mean, Roku, I just haven't quite gotten to, but that's one that I've been looking at and thinking about for a while. Um, I don't know. There's somebody, I, you know, somebody sent me a chart that showed, you know, the the uh not the hype cycle the other one where that this is not the hype cycle it's something else and they just overlaid arc over the i, I haven't shared it because i don't have the source yet i've asked for the source and the permission to share it. but when i get it i'll send it out but basically it um you know that the when when we have the, the the kind of the bubble run like the the, the tulip kind of pathway there's this uh run up to a huge peak and then it pulls back and then there are the dip buyers who come in pretty close to the top and they, they dip by and there's a little rally and that's when you get the final flush. And basically the, the two charts over the top, it's kind of spooky how close those two charts are. Now, I, I know that laying one chart off the other yeah. is just complete bullshit analysis, but uh, it was a, it was, it's an amazingly good fit. That was my comment. So it's, it's funny. If I get, I'll get some permission to share it and I'll tweet it out. It's interesting. Oh, I got to I, I gotta follow up on Xpel. I said that I would work through Xpel on value after hours in real time. So here's where my work is at. Uh, I have done some surveys of some of my friend group. I need to have a more diverse data set. Uh, I remain pretty concerned about 
the total addressable market here. Um, and at the end of the day, I'm just not sure that I'm going to buy how big it can grow into, but I am remaining open and trying to disprove confirmation bias. So, uh, talked to, to the uh, Mercedes dealer today and they said, uh, that they rarely install it on anything, but the Porsche dealer installs it on a lot. So I thought it was kind of interesting that a Mercedes dealer is rarely installing it, but, um, potentially Mercedes owners don't love their cars. That's possible. It's time, Amigos. Yeah, oh, go ahead. Yeah. Sorry, sorry, JC. You got something to add? Oh, I just uh, I talked to actually the local Mercedes dealer in this area, and something like eighty percent of the cars are just leased. So if you're you leasing, yeah. a leased car. you're not going to wrap a leased car, right? Unless they can tell you we're going to hit you so hard on the paint when you bring it back that it makes sense. But I tend to agree with you. So then I go to like all right, even if your front's two grand, like how expensive does your car actually need to be? And my gut tells me 50 no. grand and higher. Yeah. Uh, a, and, and it probably a needs to be a dark thing more, right? What? It's more of a vanity thing too, isn't it? I, I mean, tend to agree with you. Yes. Which is why I have a hard time trusting the growth. We're over time, Amigos. This was fun. <laughs>